0: what have I done? Hmm. What have I done? I wouldn't become this teacher. I'm doing a bad job at it. Like, I I feel like I'm supposed to be here, but I'm not reaching a lot of these students who I need to reach. And I just had a lot of doubts, a lot of self-doubt. And I was like, I'm going to go back and, I'm, I'm going to quit. Like, I was going to quit. My father told me life is not a bit.
1: This is Origins Africa Podcast, where we explore the origin stories of people who have made and are making their dreams come true, asking the how, the what, the when, and the why. I'm O'Shea, and on this episode, I talk with Ashanti Branch on the origin story of the Ever Forward Club, about how men today have been raised to mask their true selves and how the Ever Forward Club gives today's young men a chance to get real and move ever forward. In 2012, Chimamanda Diche gave a TEDx talk. She had said, and I quote, We do a great disservice to boys in how we reach them. We stifle the humanity of boys. We define masculinity in a very narrow way. Masculinity becomes this hard small cage and we put boys inside the cage. We teach boys to be afraid of fear. We teach boys to be afraid of weakness or vulnerability. We teach them to mask their true selves because they have to be, in Nigeria-speak, hard man." Truth be told, we see the results in the kinds of men we have around us today. Angry on the outside, sad on the inside, we live in a society reading with toxic masculinity and misogyny. The boys of yesterday have grown up to be men of today who act inhumanly and who wear masks to conceal their true personalities and feelings just to get by. In fact, many men today have lost their sense of identity. As Chimamanda rightfully said, we must raise our sons differently and that my dear listeners is the noble work that Ashanti Branch, the CEO of the Ever Forward Club, has taken on. Ashanti is the founder and executive director of the Ever Forward Club and creator of the Taking of the Mask workshop. Ashanti, through the Ever Forward Club, helps boys and girls around the world identify and remove their masks. He helps them get in touch with their inner selves and emotions so they can connect authentically with themselves and others. He also helps educators understand and connect with students. Through the taking of the mask workshop, Ashanti challenges leaders and team members to reconsider how they show up at work and transform the way they interact with and relate to each other. The Ever Forward Club started in 2004 in Oakland, California by providing support for African-American and Latino males who were not achieving their potential. Since then, the Ever Forward Club has helped all of its more than 150 members graduate from high school, and 93% of them have gone on to attend two or four-year colleges, military or trade school. One of their graduates has also gone on to receive the Governor's Award. Recently, at a TEDx talk, Ashanti described himself as mama's little boy, having grown up without a father. He had said it was a big part of his life and the wound he was still working on healing from.
0: You know, I use that term when I did my TED talk, you know, um, uh-huh. I, was to, I was trying to think of like, like, the the, the cure, you know, the person was helping me kind of work on my talk. We were talking like, "Well, how do you do a really a really powerful opening, right?" And I'm like, "I don't know." And they're like, <laughs> "They're like, was is, is it something that you don't you don't really want people to know?" And I was um, like, "I said, uh, well, I don't know. I don't really talk about the fact that I'm a mama's boy." And um, then they were like, use that, use that, and I um, think it was was I think growing up was. You know, you don't have a choice. I mean, I think I talked about that as I started exploring that to that name and that title. Like normally, when I when you hear that title, is used in a really negative way, right? Uh-huh. Like using a way of like shaming you, making you feel less than a man, less than. Um, and I think what it was was um like what would I I would have rather been daddy little daddy little boy, right? Uh-huh. You don't have a choice in that matter. What do you do? Like you just you you fall connected to the parent that is parenting you and that is showing you love and care. And so, um, that happened to be my mom. And so I think, you know, I think without having my father there, I didn't, you know, there was no other person to get attached to, you know, that's like, mm-hmm. you know, ideally a child can grow up being a t- attached to two adults who are, you know, nurturing and loving and caring for him. Um, mm-hmm. but what if you, what if you don't have to, if you only have one, then you just get a, a deeper connection there, right? You don't have to, you don't have, you, there's no way of like having these two people that you look up to and you get to see, and, you know. And so I think that, that battle and that journey of just trying to figure it out by myself a lot. You know, I had my grandfather around, my mom's father. So, you know, as okay. I think on the holidays, you know, he would, he would add that extra support, you know. He would, mm. I remember just him, you know, letting us go buy gifts for ourselves. Um, okay. So he 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 put some he had he, he he was there in some ways but he can only be there in so so many ways right like you're i think there's that's why you know he was like a father figure but, uh-huh. but he has his own family you know he has his own uh-huh. family. Put out, and so it was a tricky like thing like i think it was there was still that that hole that, that 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 hole of missing and wanting my father to be there you know
1: uh uh-huh.
0: Yeah, but I think that with you know, my mom did the best she could. You know, she she sacrificed her twenties, you know, to like not throw me out to somebody else to raise. You know, and she raised me herself. So you know, it's a it's a deep gratitude, um, yeah. and I think it's just a, it's just a connection that you can, you have with someone that uh, you know. I don't know if you can explain it or you can you know, it's like it's just really. When I, speak to, when I work with a lot of young men who were raised by their mothers, usually, there's lots of different relationships always, but mm-hmm. sometimes there, there's a really a close connection there, right? Mm-hmm. Especially the mm-hmm. oldest, right? The first, right? The firstborn, the, you know, and sometimes the connection may not be so positive, but it's, whether it's a positive or negative connection, it's a deep connection, you know? Mm-hmm. You know? And so I think that that is something that's just unspeakable in terms of young people who are growing up with one parent, like that becomes mm-hmm. that becomes your only source of, of life, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Now being the first born, um, I know at seven years old, you were told by your uncle that you are the man of the house. So you had to take care of your mother, your siblings. You're basically told to be a man without any script on how. Now, how did your seven-year-old self process this then? And how were you able to balance being mama's little boy and then being asked to be the man of the house?
0: Yeah, you know what that was I mean, that was confusing. First of all, it was it was confusing when uh like my uncle was kinda of the one who was always my uncle was the one who told me that he was the one who would always like throw me up in the air. It was like this roller coaster ride with him and to like begin believing that I, I couldn't play with him anymore was, uh-huh. was always a hard thing to do. Like it was like, wait, 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 what do you mean? There was no choice. Like I, I just wanted to play. I didn't want I don't want responsibility like that. I didn't want to be taking care of nobody. I didn't want to be responsible for nobody. I wanted to be able to just be, right? And I don't think, I think when that all of a sudden you're like, no, you don't get to just be, you get to be responsible. <laughs> welcome to the world of responsibility that you don't don't want and i think that was that was challenging in a way that i I was like why me like why do i have to do this other stuff why i gotta Mm -hmm. why am i always doing stuff right i I think it's like the one thing as a child right you like you i mean maybe children want to work and help i love helping i mean i i I mean i was a grew up with my mom just there and so i i was a helping kind of kid but Mm -hmm. get to a place where now you're helping and you're having to do a bunch of stuff like i think Mm -hmm. i just got to a place like why am i doing all this extra stuff like this is like why am i changing diapers and making formula i mean it's like this idea we're going to get a place from help to like being your responsibility when you're helping Mm -hmm. you're kind of volunteering when Mm -hmm. you're a responsibility you gotta do it regardless you know mm, mm. I think that early on I just became like kind of like this is a lot of extra stuff mm. there's, a, there's a lot of extra stuff and I and I I was I don't know I think about it a lot I'm like I have one picture of myself making pancakes like probably like a Saturday morning you know what I'm thinking about it like am I I'm like oh yeah I used to get up and help help make food and like uh-huh. i was, it was just like a lot of a lot of stuff now look at while it was happening i don't think i was like i wasn't grumbling through it okay. but i remember because because part of it if you did want to grumble through it, you just didn't let it be heard you know uh-huh, uh-huh, no. uh-huh. yeah you may not be liking it but you just deal with it you know um and i realized i had to just learn how to navigate through it and it was i, I think I would say if I was gonna really express some feelings around it there were times where I was really angry mm-hmm. um there was because I couldn't go outside and play you know? mm-hmm. I think there was times of uh, of, of sadness of like um like why why do I have to have all these extra responsibilities you know mm-hmm. um, and there was lots of emotions but I was kind of taught that you don't get to show emotions and so I just stuffed them. I just stuffed Mm. them, you know, I just stuffed them.
1: And stuffing those emotions, how did that affect you growing up?
0: Well, you know, I I think it's just one of my, one of um, the mentors said to me, like, if you never dealt with it then, then it still needs to be dealt with. Mm. You know, like the, the stuff that you didn't deal with as a child that are either, you know, traumas or wounds or things that... Like, if it didn't get dealt with, you know, you may have, like, thought about it, but you didn't deal with it, you didn't get to talk it out so that it didn't c- carry some weight, then you, you you, basically still probably need to talk about it, mm-hmm. right? And as you begin mm-hmm. to talk about it, I think it, it begins to let go of some of the, 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 the energy that it carries, right? And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, as I think back to a lot of those days of just, like, extra load, it felt like an extra load. Um, You know, there was not really, no, I think maybe once or twice or a few times I would be like, I don't want to do all this, but it was quickly, (laughs) it was quickly like, clarified that it doesn't matter what you want, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. This is just the way it is and you just deal with it. And, um, so I think that it was just like a processing of just like, okay, so now as an adult, as I do a lot of storytelling, Mm -hmm. I get get to like, let some of the, the steam from it go, Mm-hmm. I get to, get to tell my story. And I think mm-hmm. it's a journey. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's always a lesson for young men who are carrying around stuff like that, that they don't hold it to their, you know, in their adult ages to start talking about it. They talk about it while they're young so that the, so the steam doesn't, the, so the pressure doesn't slow them down to their goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think that's where I feel the, the most, uh, um, the most work needs to be done around that is, and I I think that's why the mentoring program started because I was looking for it, but I didn't know what to go out and ask for, you know, Mm -hmm. that I wanted to just be around other young men who I could talk about what I was going through with and not be Mm -hmm. afraid about it. I I didn't know that I was looking for like a, Uh, Don't figure who I could, you know, emulate or just know that I could ask questions to and not be embarrassed about the questions I was asking Mm. growing up. And so I think that it was just like what happened in my life. I just started to begin to create what I Mm.
1: I was. Now, there was a point um, when you were 17 years old that you broke down and you cried. Could you talk about that? Do you know the particular
0: experience that I'm referring to? I do I do Yeah Do you want yeah. to share that? Yeah Um So This was I was a senior in high school I was on my way to college I had a, a Been accepted to one of the top engineering schools In the US And I was a, a Cal Poly San Luis Obispo And I was super excited I was ready the were ready And um You know Came home one day from wrestling practice Um And um her my mom and her um, husband at the time, I'm um, having an argument and it was getting a little out of control. Um, I heard my mom like say a phrase that really startled me, um, something like, um, "like I wish you would put your hands on me," and. Um, I was like, and as the mama's boy, still at 17, like, you know, but, but more mature and adult, you know, like on my own kind of managing myself, I ran to her room to kind of see what was going on. And, and then I saw my mom on the floor and, um, it was really, it was a tough moment because I went into like a rage and, uh, mm-hmm. and I, I went in to try and, you know, grab this man and, that didn't, I wasn't effective. Cause <laughs> so I was way, he was way stronger than I was. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I ran around the corner, I, around the corner to a friend's house. And this friend was not on his way to college. He was not, he was not planning to do anything necessarily um, monumental with his future, um, okay. but he was a good friend. And um, I, we never judge each other based on school or anything. Mm-hmm. We just, mm-hmm. And I told him to give me a gun and uh, I got back to my house, in, in front of my house, and uh, getting ready to grab this paper bag and go inside, I realized that I was about to throw it all away. You know, I was about to throw everything I had worked for for all the years I had sacrificed. You know, partying and hanging out and whatever. I was. I worked hard to go to college, and I was about to throw mm. it all. In that moment and it's because I, I just saw this i right there I was, I was like what am i gonna do what am i about to do like i'm not i'm not a kind of i wasn't the kind of kid who oh, handles weapons i never touched even touched one before mm-hmm. but i mine i was like i was like in a rage and i was and i was taught that i could as a man i could do, i could show anger mm-hmm. Anger we get you respected right mm-hmm. but if you show fear fear is considered weakness if you show sure. st- it's sadness is considered weakness And if you're a weak man Then you're almost considered The way society makes you look is like, oh, well, I guess you're like a woman I guess you're like, yeah. not manly And therefore it, I, I knew that those emotions couldn't be shown So I had to show the other one Which was anger and rage And just, you know, like Almost being to the point of crazy You know? Yeah. It was right there in that moment where I just sat in my car And I cried, you know, I was like I was about to throw it all away, like in seconds, like in seconds, like you know, like luckily there was no weapon in the house, right? Luckily like, mm-hmm. there was no weapon that I had easy access to that quickly. Mm-hmm. I had time to go on this journey to go get it, and then finally catching my breath all along. Just like I was crying in the car, and I think what I see with a lot of young people, when I, you know, here in Oakland, we it's a rough community, and you know, almost you know every if not every year, every other year. Another young person, a senior in high school, loses their life, you know, with mm-hmm. a kid being killed or something. And, and I always just think back to, like, why, why I keep doing this work is because I was almost that young man. Right. And mm-hmm. maybe i hadn't killed. But if, if I was I was going to pretty much throw my life away, I was going to throw my life away, not because I was a bad kid, but because I had no emotional tools,
1: mm-hmm. no emotional mm-hmm.
0: tools to deal with sadness or fear because mm-hmm. I, was, I wasn't I was even supposed to have those emotions. So I think that my work began connecting deeply to the, this, this idea that if you don't know you, if you don't experience these emotions because you're told you're not supposed to have them and you try and convert them to something else, they're probably going to come out at the wrong velocity, the wrong magnitude, and... Mm-hmm. Against the wrong people, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things. Those are lessons that I remember learning growing up. You know, like things I saw people do, things I heard older boys t- say you're supposed to do. You mm-hmm. know, uh, I think one is really <laughs> interesting. I was talking about this the other day. I said, like, you know, I, I was talking to a group of middle school. I said, you know, if you ask a, a girl for her phone number, she says no. What, what do you actually feel, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you could say I'm feel angry. Or you just uh-huh. have embarrassed. Uh-huh. What? 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 How do we help We learn how to deal with embarrassment? What do we learn? Uh-huh. I didn't learn any good tools on dealing with embarrassment. I learned, well, if you're going to feel embarrassed, you make the other person feel embarrassed. So now you start calling her names. Like, this is silly stuff. This is like, why, why would you start calling this girl name who didn't give you her number when you, you wanted her number 30 seconds ago? Now you're calling her name. Uh-huh. Well, uh-huh. if you don't have any tools of dealing with embarrassment, the feeling of like not good enough or what, what do you do with those feelings? Well, you better learn how to deal with them because life is going to give you opportunities to feel those often and mm-hmm. if you don't deal with them in a healthy way, you're going to end up trying to always get retribution of this feeling that you think you shouldn't have, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that's the work that we've been trying to do. If you can't name it, you can't tame it. That's what Mark Brackett at Yale says around uh, emotional uh, your emotions, right? Um, if, you, if you can name it, then you can tame it. And so therefore name the emotion that I'm feeling fear, that I'm feeling sadness, then I'm like, oh, okay, so what do I do with this sadness? How do I navigate this sadness? As Mm -hmm. opposed to converting it to anger because we've learned that okay, I know what to do with this. I can just prove how tough and cool I am. So those are just like some things that we try and work on and it's been really beautiful in the work. But it's all it started with me kind of doing some of my work, you know?
1: Now, growing up, I know that, uh, referencing to what, referencing what you just said as well, um, there was some struggle between what it was or what it meant to be a man in your mom's house and in the streets of Oakland. So how, how, how did that affect you growing up? How to balance what your mom expected of what it was to be a man and what the street wanted you to be as a man? How, how were you able to juggle that and how did that affect you?
0: Mm. I think that the rules were different right I mean if I think about being a man like growing up like I was the man of the house but I think I was pretty clear I I was clear that I wasn't a man right And there were certain decisions I got to make because I had a lot of responsibility but there was a whole lot of decisions I didn't get to make I couldn't just decide I want to go go do something you know what I'm saying Like, like it was like it was like, yeah, you're you're man light, right? You, you got a lot of responsibilities, but you don't get to make any choices, you know? It was kind mm-hmm. of like that. But I think the the idea is that the streets was like, like in my mom's house, you know, there was a lot of rules, right? A lot of rules about being kind and respectful and, um, you know, doing chores and all these things that were, but I was always her, Her little boy, I think, I don't know if you ever, not your mom's little boy, but I think Mm -hmm. she never, like, I don't think it was from her where she was like, you are, be a man. I think I was, my uncle gave me those, that responsibility and I took it and I, like, I wore it, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that even though I had so many responsibilities to, like, help out and take care of my siblings, like, I was still kind of outside of the house, there's different rules. You you know, you're not the kindness and niceness and responsibility and cleaning up after people and washing dishes and folding clothes, that wasn't people, what people on the streets were saying makes you a man. That was actually more, being more domesticated than anything, uh-huh. you know. So I think there was these rules, like if you want to be a man, you better be tough, you better know how to fight, you better know how that people take advantage of you, you better not be, better not be soft, you better not, cry. you know, like you had to like, almost like, shut off parts of your character mm. right you couldn't couldn't smile too much you couldn't you couldn't want really close friendships like there was like the rules that were like people had established that were like what this isn't making easy why why not what was you know what's wrong with it? because if you're smiling well you're smiling too much something must be wrong with you you're like what like where mm-hmm. did that come from but it's real mm-hmm. it's like if you a young person who is trying to be just happy and just enjoying somewhat life, people will sh- slowly like shut it out of you or they will force you to question yourself. Like, why are you pretending to be so happy? Uh, uh, you're like, uh, uh, I don't think I was pretending. I think I was happy, but now we're having this conversation. Maybe I wasn't right. Like how do you, I like, think the world has a way of like trying to make you conform to what they uh, expect to be and conforming in my community was but well, definitely, the young men I grew up with was like, "Better be tough. Better not. Better not show how how weak you are. You better be ready to fight at any moment." But mm-hmm. and I think I I just began. I remember, I remember having lots of fights in elementary. And in elementary, I fought more than anything. Middle school, I kind of calmed down a little bit. But I remember just having to fight all the time. And the fights were always about proving to somebody that I'm not going to be
1: pushed around, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was never the aggressor. I, I'm, not, I'm not that guy. That wasn't never my character's like to be out looking for a fight, but I would never back down from a fight, you know? So it was mm-hmm. <laughs> one of these things where you just, you know, you just push the right button and it's on. And, be, and once you show your people your button, then they always got your number, you know? So you'd be like, I, I had this thing where I would say like, look, you can talk about my mother if you want because I know that what you're saying is not true. Mm-hmm. But if you talk about my father, mm-hmm. then I'm, then I'm going to punch you, right? <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. I had this, I had this really, I had this really big button on my chest that was like letting people know how they could get into a fight with me, and I literally was suspended dozens of times oh, because, wow. because I was, I was, I was literally telling people how to, how to, how to make it happen, you know. And those were, it was really wild. It was a wild time, mm-hmm. but I was angry. I was angry, and I was sad. I was, I was, I was. Probably, if you say, well, I was sad that I didn't have a father. I was, I, 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 think I was. I really wanted to have a father, and I think that was made it really hard. And so I just became really. I turned out all that sadness because you can't really show your sadness, so mm-hmm. I just, and I just became a really angry little boy.
1: Mm. So I guess society does a lot of disservice to how boys are raised.
0: Yeah, I think I think yeah. I'm definitely the definitely can speak for right here in the United States, and I know that when I went to um, did this workshop in Lagos um, with some students there, what I saw in their masks was similar mm. to what we see here in California. Mm. On the front, I get to show people that I'm smart and intelligent, athletic and funny and happy and joyful. Mm. But on the back, I don't get to talk about the other stuff. I don't get to talk about the the fear and the judgment and the sadness and the trauma and the the family stuff. I don't get to talk about it. And so I think they we bottle it up. We told our boys, you got to bottle it up, suck mm-hmm. it up, suck it up until you suck it up so much that you, you have no more room to suck any more up. And mm-hmm. then it's, it's going to come out, you know, it's gonna, it's going to come out, you know? And when it comes out, it comes out with such a, a flurry, because usually it wasn't just the one thing that set it off; it was all the dozens of things you never dealt true, with. True, true, true. And now mm-hmm. they're out, and mm-hmm. that is the danger. That's a danger because the the magnitude of that usually is worse than what it needed to be if it was dealt with alone by itself in that one situation. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess it's time to tell our boys now that it's actually okay to cry. It's okay to feel sad. Because even in Nigeria today, boys are not expected to cry. Even if, for instance, someone died in the family, perhaps the dad or the mom, they would tell the boy not to cry, that boys don't cry. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that
0: happens a lot. So they... So they're supposed to stuff those emotions. They just stuff those emotions.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And keep it all inside. And they're yeah, the ones who now maybe pacify their moms and their sisters, perhaps. But they themselves, they cannot cry because the society doesn't expect you to cry as a boy. Ooh,
0: ooh. There's this um, There's a book I was telling you about um, by, from Mark Brackett. At, okay. uh, it's called Permission to Feel. And uh, there's this one line That I, I highlighted Because it was super powerful And it talks about this idea of like Emotions that are not dealt with um, Will um, is, let me, I'm going to just read this one part It says um, The irony though is that When we ignore our feelings Or suppress them They only become stronger The really powerful emotions Build up inside us Like a dark force That inevitably poisons Everything we do Whether we like it or not Hurt feelings don't vanish on their own. They don't uh-huh. heal themselves. If we don't express our emotions, they pile up like a debit that will eventually come due. Uh-huh.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And I'm it's just like that. It's like they pile up, it piles up, it piles up. And I see with young men all the time in our work. Um, they're angry. They're angry. So when you ask them, how you doing, what you feel, like, I don't know. They're like, it's is already in a, uh, adversarial mood, right? Even when somebody's there to help them, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's like, if, if somebody's drowning, what, what they say is, you better take, you better be careful trying to help somebody who's drowning because they will drown you, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not because they're trying to hurt you, it's because they're so afraid that everything they they respond to is trying to preserve the life, right? And so the person trying to help them, they're punching them, they're hitting them, they're not really trying to hit you, they don't know any better. They're just like, I need to I need to be moving to get, right? And I think that when someone's dealing with anger, sadness, fear, trauma, those kind of emotions that are, like, not being dealt with in healthy ways, you can ask them all day long, hey, how can I help you? They're like, I don't know, but nothing. I don't yeah. need nothing. But deep down, they know they need something, right? The, they, they know there's an emptiness there, a void. Um, and I, well, we, my job in the work is just to keep asking. You know, no pressure. Hey, how you doing? Anything you need? And when they say I'm good, you say, "Well, what's good?" When they say I'm fine, what's fine? Uh-huh. I'm okay. I'm. It's always, I'm always about probing deeper because the first answer is usually the the weed, weeding out answer, right? We uh-huh. weed out, people don't really care anyway, and so they they give you an answer they think you want to hear, even uh-huh. if it's not right. And that's that's been our work. That's been our our work is like giving that opportunity to talk and go deeper. Um. Mm-hmm. Um. and so when we when we give them they finally have the the, the, the trust that you really want to mm-hmm. hear to say then they get a chance to open up and they get mm-hmm. to talk about how they're really feeling and knowing that their feelings are validated they're not shamed for it and that you're supposed to feel and the more you let yourself talk about the things you're really feeling the more you make sure that you don't um, get into this space of, uh, of of emotional overload that you can't handle
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, great. So, what was the turning point in your life while growing you know?
0: up? Um, it was a, uh, I would say probably Miss BP. It was my middle school English teacher, uh, whose class I hated. I hated English, but I loved mm-hmm. her. I loved her, like so. I would always, I, I think deep down, I really loved her class, but I didn't like, I didn't like English, a subject, right? Like she was just really supportive and caring, and um, I think one day she gave me detention. And uh, I went to detention and I was like really angry because it wasn't even my fault what happened. Um, Uh But in that detention, she was blabbing on. She was talking for a long time. And in one sentence, she said that I remember really stuck in with me. And she was like, "Um, I know you're sad that your father died before you were born, but life doesn't give you what you want. Life gives you what you get and you got to make the most out of it. Uh And I think, and I and I heard that sentence. I heard it, and and that sentence changed my life. It was this idea that I had a responsibility to like create the life that I wanted to live. That that I had permission to be sad about it, and that uh, like I had to make a choice that I was going to use my father's death not as a the thing that would destroy me, but the thing that would Uh inspire me. Uh And And I began to use it as a catalyst to say, you know. I don't know what he would have wanted me to be, but I'm going to make sure that when he's looking at me, he will be proud. Right. Uh, uh, and my uh, context change. that's a different context with then I'm angry. That he's not here. How dare him uh, not be here as you know, that context there only creates more anguish inside of oneself, you know, but a context of how do I make you proud even though you're not here? Absolutely um, everything. And that's and I got to, you know, from that point on, I was like really super focused on like being successful and giving and giving my best. I didn't know what um, success was, but I knew about giving my best. And I know many times I was not in school giving my best and uh everything changed after that. I really began to get on, get on track. And that's uh, I'm, I'm sure that that was one of the catalysts that uh really pushed me to get to college.
1: Uh, uh, uh. Okay, that's very deep. So, growing up, you had decided that you weren't going to be a teacher. After college, you were making good money as an engineer. But here we are. You're a teacher. <laughs> yeah. So, why did you decide to leave your engineering job? Well,
0: I started tutoring at this learning center. So... You know, as an engineer, I started making money. I started traveling, and um, you know, well, I, as a, so you make when I was in college, I had no money. I go over making money, and now I'm like, you know, when I go traveling, it was always good to have like extra travel money. You know,
1: uh-huh,
0: uh-huh. So when I got offered this little job to tutor, I was like, fine, I'll, I'll tutor. <laughs> I'll make some extra money. It was like good cash to put in the bank and just sit on the side for traveling, uh-huh. um, and I, when I started tutoring at this place called, I, started, I was tutoring at two different places. But when I started tutoring at the at the Upward Bound program, which is helping first generation students go to college, um, I really began to take it personal. Like my buddy was like, "Look, can you can you come tutor for us on Saturday mornings? I, I need a math teacher." I'm like, "Man, I got time for that? I'm, I'm, I'm I party on Friday nights, you know? I'm trying to be waking up early on those Saturday morning." And he was like. Come on, I need somebody to help me with this math. And I'm like, you know, and I, I was talking to him a while. You know, I wanted to help him, but I was like, look, you got like a couple of months to find somebody else, because I I party on the weekends. Weekends are my time to really have fun, you know. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, what I realized was that, you know, I wanted to support him, so I just you know I did. It. I made the sacrifice of not going out on Friday nights to be at this class at eight o'clock on Saturday morning. Um, but I. Uh, Remember that for that first class, I, there were kids in there who were like not taking it serious. And I'm like, look, kind of, I was I took it kinda of personal. Like I first of all I sacrificed my my last night social activities <laughs> to be here and you're gonna be here goofing off. No, 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 not here with me. And so I was like, Why am I taking this so serious? And I was like, you know, like technically Saturday morning, who wants to be really doing a lot of math? I know mm-hmm. I wouldn't I know Saturday mornings it was chore day, you know so I was like you all are amazing y'all woke up here to be here but if you're here you might as well do some work and I think that's how ever that's how the that's how the work began I was like I was pushing them to be like, well if you if you're here make the most out of it don't throw it away and this program is gonna help you get to college and I knew that that program was helping kids get to college I was like, you better get your stuff together and so I was like driving home a couple of the Saturdays and I'm like, I'm taking this really serious like, like, I could just go in there and do nothing. And okay. I would. I, it wouldn't hurt me, right? Like, I got a job. This is not, like, my job. This is my little side hustle, right? Like, I mean, if I think about it, if I think about, like, if I didn't really care about it, why would I care if kids came in there and did nothing on Saturday mornings? Mm. But something inside of me was, like, starting to, like, catch fire. And I think that it was in that and working at this other place called the Huntington Learning Center was where I realized This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Like this, and I think I was more afraid and angry because of it. Cause I'm like, wait a minute, TJ don't make no money. Mm. No money. There's no way. There's no way. Like, and I, so I ran, I was like, ran from it, you know? But I think that's what was happening. My my heart started calling me saying, oh, Ashanti, you found it now, right? The thing that makes you come alive, the thing that Mm -hmm. makes you like fully. Like recharge on like, like what is important in the world? Like, yeah, you could be an engineer and build some big buildings and make some cool stuff and get some accolades and some grand opening parties and some nice t-shirts and, but what does that? What does that really matter to the world? Because you build a big building, you know, for some people it matters something, but for me it didn't. It, it was like, yeah. But when you see a young person go from not understanding to understanding, and that spark and that light goes on in their eyes there is no feeling like it because mm-hmm. i was not i was not their classroom teacher i was a support teacher so i was teaching them math on the weekends to help them do better in their classes so they come to me with questions they had and things they were struggling with in class and i was like Paul, oh, let me make that easy for you and just to be able to help turn that light on there's like there's no better feeling the better feeling i get is when i'm on stage
1: mm-hmm.
0: to tell my story and um and a young person at the end will come up and say, you know, thank you for telling that story, right? I think mm-hmm. that's the feeling I get now, since I'm not teaching in a classroom, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that you get to help people break free, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there's nothing there's nothing better than to be a person who can help others, who kind of break free from feeling in bondage, you know? And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so that's really, wow, that's a well, touch.
1: Was it an easy decision to make or so you still had your engineering job and then teaching was beckoning. So what did you do next? Because it was definitely a it was definitely a tough decision. So how was it like? What did you do?
0: Yeah, um, it was it was hard. I mean, it was kind of like when I. Before I made the decision, I, I, I went to a new company. I started making more money, and I uh, um, I thought the money would help. I thought making more money in engineering would make that that weird feeling of trying to become a team. Hey. Mm-hmm. Uh, And As so I went to this uh, ma- this huge project in in Silicon Valley, and the it was like really more cutthroat kind of engineering and, ma- and management stuff, and I was like, it made it made the desire to become a teacher worse, you know, it made it like more strong. Mm. Am I willing to stress over these things or would I rather be stressing over other things um, in terms of pressure of job and career? And I, I, I mean, I I wanted to make money. I, wanted to be, I, I didn't want to be poor. I wanted mm. to be rich, you know, like I grew up with very little resources. And mm. so I, I wanted to live a lifestyle where I could just be like, I can just buy whatever I want. And as an engineer, I pretty much was getting close to that. Like, I just like, I have enough money for my bills and Mm -hmm. for fun and for other stuff. Like, you know, growing up with like just having enough, just enough, just enough to get by It's a different feeling when you have more than enough to get by, you know? You Mm -hmm. You can save some, you can, you know, you can buy gifts for other people. Like, it was just like lots of new things. And so um, it, I think it was just a calling, man. I think it was... the, It was like this thing where you're like, I'm not... I'm not happy about this. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, like uh, how long are you willing to, like... Once you acknowledge... If, let's say that you were working a job and you didn't know that you weren't happy. You just were like, no, that's what I love to do. Now, maybe you could say that forever. Because if you didn't notice it, that you were not happy about it, what, what happens once you notice that... It is not bringing you joy that you're doing mm-hmm. it five days a week, 60, 70 hours a week, driving however long you have to drive or commute to work, and you're miserable. You're not miserable. Like, let's say, you, let's say you're not that far. You were like, I hate this. I loved engineering. I still love engineering. But it was like it didn't bring you what you thought that you were looking for in terms of a daily existence. And since you spend yeah. most of your week there, then what do you do? I mean, I, I know people who have jobs who don't like their jobs, but they stay because they got responsibilities and bills and and things to take care of. But what if you didn't have to do that? What if you had the freedom to be like, I get to do whatever it is I, I want to do to be happy? And um, I think it was at that moment. And I think a friend of mine was like, look, you're always an engineer, so why don't you just go get this teaching thing out of your system and then come back. And I'm like, mm-hmm. Oh, that may be a good idea. And I just, I just had a friend, I had a friend, <laughs> I had a friend who was to the Peace Corps. So he was, I remember when he went off the grid for two years to go to the Peace Corps. I'm like, Oh I was kind of thinking like kind of like a Peace Corps thing. Mm-hmm. To, and you come back to your career and you're even better at your career. I'm like, all right. Um, it was super powerful. I I, I, would, I decided to go to the more traditional. Where I just went back to school and got my teaching credential, and then started teaching. And that's how it all happened. And I couldn't have planned it. Like I couldn't. Have, when I was in college as an engineering student, you never could have told me one day you're gonna leave all this and you're gonna go teach. I would have been like, uh, somebody's lying here. <laughs> <laughs> somebody's lying because that ain't gonna be. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I would have lost a big bet because I would have bet you any amount of money that that wasn't going to happen. But uh, you know, I think that's what about life is is right, like, right? When you give yourself a chance to follow your your passion, your heart, then you ultimately know that there's way more, there's way more out there for you, and that you there's more going on with what you want to do to transform your the world than than you could do just by. Mm-hmm. scripting it out as a you know 15 16 year old who's like here's what my life is gonna look like and sometimes you can script it out and it works out perfectly and sometimes you like oh i don't really like the way that looks i don't like the way that feels you know
1: okay so now you left your job where you're making good money and started teaching Now, one would have thought that being passionate about it, you'd hit the ground running and be successful at it. But you were failing at it. At that point, what was going through your mind?
0: Uh, What was going through my mind was, what have I done? Hmm. What have I done? I went and become this teacher. I'm doing a bad job at it. Like... I, I feel like I'm supposed to be here, but I'm not reaching a lot of these students who I need to reach. and I just had a lot of doubts, a lot of self-doubt and I was like, I'm gonna go back and I'm, I'm gonna quit like I was gonna I was gonna quit. And people were like, no, it takes about two, three years to get really good at it. And I'm like, you mean I gotta be bad at this for two years before I get before I get good at it like you I gotta be miserable for two years like and I had just left a job where I was like, I wasn't miserable. I just wasn't truly happy. I thought this new job was going to bring me instant happiness, and although mm. although it brought me fulfillment, it didn't bring me happy because I was I was first of all not making much money, mm-hmm. and and I was like doing a horrible job. So I was like, wait a minute, this is am I going backwards in my in my you know my, my journey towards success? It felt mm-hmm. like i was going backwards because I wasn't feeling more successful. And that's how it all happened. I think the biggest thing was me just figuring out that I had to had to make some big choices. And that's how the that's how that's how I Ever Forward started. The nonprofit started, the program started as a first year teacher. I was like, look, I'm not willing to sit here and watch smart kids fail my class. But the what I need to try and support them with, I can't support them in the classroom. There's not enough room mm. time in the classroom to do it. So I got to do it when they are outside of class. And that's how I just started this idea, like how do I invite them to lunch and start talking to them and figuring out what's in the way. And that's how Ever Forward began to really grow. That, that's how it started. And then from there, it just really began to grow.
1: Mm-hmm. So let's go to Ever Forward Club. What does Ever Forward Club do today and why... Why is the Ever
0: Forward Club super critical today? Well, so Ever Forward is a youth development um, mentoring program. So we do, we have Ever, the three programs, Ever Forward Club. We have, that's a, a program for young men, middle school and high school, providing weekly circles of mentoring for those young men to just grow up and deal with life in a really healthy way. Then we have ever forward professional development, which is working with teachers and parents and administrators and um, you know, other people who work with youth in school settings or outside of school settings to really provide them support around becoming their becoming more supportive and, and relevant for students and their support and their success. And then we have these ever forward experiences, which is work that we do all over the world. Um, the 100,000 masks challenge, um, it was one of those And it's really about Outward facing opportunity Outward mm-hmm. facing To give Young people a chance to uh, Explore these masks And it's like That's our, our work Our deeper work mm-hmm. So Could so, you talk about this mask? Yeah So we, we started So Ever 4 Today Is this program And what we did is We were featured in a documentary Called The Mask You Live In Which is about masculinity and how this hyper-masculine narrative of being a man is really hurting our boys. And so the feature of the documentary really opened up a lot of doors for us, and we were doing this workshop that we created in the documentary called Taking Off the Mask, and it's about exploring, here is the front of my mask, here's the things I let people see about me, here's the back of my mask, here's the things I don't let people see, and really, how do I let? how do I really... Acknowledge those things so that I can recognize that, oh, there's all this stuff about myself that I don't talk about. I don't get to talk to people about. And if I'm doing it, maybe other people are doing the same. So how do we not only have deeper connections to people we know by, re- by just being able to ask more meaningful questions? Or how do we recognize that everybody we meet is in some ways operating from a conscious of a mask? Uh, uh, they're only they're only showing you what they want to show you you're showing them what you want to show them and if there's no connection there or if there's some kind of if it doesn't always match up as a, a deep connection then maybe it's because you all are trying to be who the person wants you to be as opposed to being all of yourself and so how do we give young people space to deal with that emotional stuff that they don't deal with so that it doesn't come out and explode i think the mask was finally our way of being able to help young people go deal with the stuff they need to deal with in a healthy way, so it didn't come out in unhealthy ways. And I think it was a very good metaphor just to give them an image around it, right? Draw this math, write these words and take a look and look at these other masks that are around you. And then you start recognizing you're not alone, right? You're not the only one who's dealing with some real stuff. But if you believe you're the only one dealing with real stuff, then you may not ever, um, you may not ever like deal with it in a healthy way, until so it explodes, and then you have to deal with it. But now it's in such a, a shambles; you mess things up so bad that it's like it's it's in crisis mode, you know.
1: Okay. So, what's the hundred thousand mask challenge?
0: Okay, the 100,000 Mask Challenge. The 100,000 Mask Challenge is a campaign we created. Uh, it was connected to this idea of the workshop taking off the mask because well, originally we were just doing workshops all over. And um, I was collecting these masks for some reason because something was really calling me about these masks that we were collecting. Um, and I didn't know why. And then one day we just had this like this moment where I was like, why don't we... Give this tool out to educators all over. We will we'll make a goal to collect a hundred thousand masks. Um, and I didn't know what I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't really know about creating a global campaign. I didn't know anything about. I mean, I didn't, you know I I, I didn't even know what I was doing. I just knew something was calling me to act. Mm-hmm. And in order for me to do that, I had to like focus directly on this idea that if we collect these masks from around the world, we can then begin helping people recognize they're not alone, right? The other people are dealing with similar things that they're dealing with. And that if we can support them around developing themselves, we can actually change lives, right? If we recognize if you recognize that you're dealing with something and somebody in your same city around is dealing with similar things, then you may be more willing to deal with your stuff in a healthy way and that's Mm -hmm. that's how it all happened that's how it all began to to grow and so we've collected at this point 42,000 masks and Um, um, and, and growing you know
1: interesting well done (laughs) thank you man so how can Nigerians join in this 100k mask challenge here in Nigeria
0: well, you know, one of the things that we are trying to figure out is when I did that one workshop at the school there, it went really well. And um, I think it's really how do we find, you know, people on the ground who are willing just to make their own mask? You know, uh-huh. there's a website, 100kmasks.com. They can go to, they can actually make the mask online. You know, our our former model was like, our former, you know, design the, the tool was, You print this card out, you write on the card, take a picture of it, you text it back to us. That's like five extra steps. So, we created an online digital web interface where people can draw their mask online and then they submit it right there. They can download it if they want, they can not, they can share it on social media if they want. But it allows allows them to make masks digitally. And um, so, the website is www.100, the letter K, masks dot com and um and and that's our goal you know I think with Nigeria can help us share the share the tool with other educators who are trying to build connection with their students you know or just to go in there and make their own mask and be a part of the movement like right? recognize okay. that you're not alone that there are other people dealing with similar things you may be dealing with and how do we begin building that connection together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Nice, nice.
0: Um, now, I'll, I'll, I'll go back a bit briefly
1: to that point when you had quit your job and started teaching and you were failing at it. Now, I know there are many people in that phase as well, people who are trying to perceive their passion, but it doesn't seem to be working. Perhaps they are failing at it. So what would be your advice to them? Yeah,
0: I, I would say, you know, what had to happen in that moment was not to stop looking for why you're doing the work. Like, when I became a teacher and I was doing a horrible job, like, I could have easily gone back and got an engineering job in a, a week, you know? I could have been like, I quit. I could have gone and got an engineering job. I would have been making big money again. But something inside of me was like, this this was not just a like a, a whim idea. You know, this was like a year of credential program that was confirming yes, this is what I want to be doing. And so the fact that I'm in the work and I'm not feeling the the fire, I think it was because I was feeling, feeling how challenging it was. Like I knew the math. But because because I thought I knew the math, I thought that would make you a good math teacher. And it's really the math is only such a small part. Like and some people would not agree with that and that's fine. But what I what I experienced was that it's about relationships. And if you don't know how to build a relationship with a student, then some students, if they don't have a relationship with you, they will not learn from you. Uh-huh. Some, stu- some students, if you if you don't even have to come to school, they're going to make up some homework for themselves. You know, you know, uh-huh. like what I'm talking about, the kids who I was like passionate about were not the kids who were like making up their own homework assignments to to, you know, to do extra. I'm talking about the ones who were like there every day doing nothing. And so I knew that my passion was like finding those young men that were really, I think deep down, similar to what I was going through, just going through things and trying to hold them in and them not really working out well. And I think for many of them, they they didn't have their Miss BP, you know, no Miss BP had found them yet. So it was like, well, maybe it's my chance. It was my chance to help them break free from whatever is kind of bonding them and hold them back. And that's how... That's how it happened. So I encourage anyone out there who is in that transition and trying to follow your heart and things are not going well is to just keep checking in with your heart. Like, is, is this what's calling me to do? And I think that deep down, I felt like I was called to do it. I wasn't like, it wasn't like I didn't want to do it. I just wanted to do it and do a good job. So like when I when I was clear that I still wanted to do it, then I had to find out how to be successful at it. Because I was mm. not willing, I was not willing to wait around and be a failure at it for years. To get better, and that's okay. That's, that's a learning curve of getting better, right? But I was me, my my own personal uh, expectations of myself was that no, 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 you need to be, you need to be doing well now. These kids can't wait for you to get better for two years, so you need to figure out what you need to do differently. So I knew that it wasn't my teaching in the classroom; it was relationship building, and some of those relationships you can build in the kinds of a classroom, but for some young men, if being friends with the teacher ain't cool they're not going to be friends with the teacher you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying if, at the, if being smart is not cool at the at the school then they're going to act like they're not smart and so, mm-hmm. I had, so I had to find out how to do it in a way that let them still feel cool and help build a relationship and a connection so that I could learn how to be a, be a better supporter for them and a better advocate and that's mm-hmm. how it all started
1: mm-hmm. okay okay so it's about figuring out how to do what you want to do differently to 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 still achieve your goals.
0: Yeah, and sometimes, well, yeah, not only see what you want to do differently, but maybe it's just sometimes, sometimes it's just stick to itness, right? Mm. Like I'm like I'm impatient, right? Like you remember, I left a I left a very high paying job mm-hmm. to then become a teacher who are I wasn't being paid, so I wasn't I wasn't used to being a failure. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like I wasn't I wasn't like something I felt good about and if you got a bunch of students in your class who you're responsible to teach and they're failing, I took it personal I took it as me failing not them failing Like I was like, what am I doing wrong? and so I think that because I was I had high expectations of myself first of all, I was not willing to let the let let it just be where I was like, okay they're just failing my class I guess they don't want to learn That has one context. In some ways, some some people believe, but I didn't believe that. Mm -hmm. So my my job was to figure out how to support them around that. Mm.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, I think you said this in one of your TED Talks, that you can only really come alive when you take your masks off. Could you talk about that?
0: Well, I think that when I talk about the mask, it's around this idea of who... Are you when you when you're at your best? Right? Who are you? What are you? What do you? What's important to you? What are your values? And do you get to be that person all the time? Like, I think that idea is that to be able to come alive is like I get to like speak my truth. Who this is who I am. This is the things I like. This is the, and sometimes when we go into work, we have to like be part of ourselves. We can only be talk about certain things. Like, So here I can talk about these things and then over there I can talk about other things. And it's just like, you begin to like have to compartmentalize yourself. Uh Uh That that, that makes sense for a lot of things. But if I'm coming to work or if I'm coming to my career and I'm just like, feeling like I'm not fully myself, like how long does that last? I I don't know. I I was not willing to, um, I think it's, it's, it's a hard thing to do, right? Because at work you're supposed to be the professional. So how do you talk about the things that are fun for you or whatever? Some, some work environment, you can see more work environments today than they were 20 years ago are like, how do we make a work environment fun? And, and people get along and people are glad to be here as opposed uh-huh. to like come to work, do your job, go back home. Right. Yeah. And yeah. you look at Silicon Valley, most of these companies, it looks like Disneyland inside their uh-huh. building oh, because they recognize the value of people coming to work, feeling good about, being there and how productivity mm-hmm. can go through the roof when you can create an environment like that and i think that we need to create that environment for each other and for ourselves and so if you're not in that environment let's say you don't work in a fancy place like that you just work in a place with four walls but are you enjoying the four walls you know are you are you at least fired up when you walk into the building or is it gloomy like uh like i just i just knew that I wanted something different in life, and I was like willing to 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 go after it. And I think that um, you know, luckily I, I didn't have a family at that time. I didn't have children. I didn't have a mortgage. I could make changes that were big financial changes in my life, and not worry about like surviving still. So I think that there, there's some freedom in knowing that I had the some I had more room to make choices because I didn't have any dependence. You know, no one was depending on me. Necessarily for their livelihood so I could make a choice that was a huge financial decision and still feel good about it, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. Just a curious question. So you mentioned then that when you made the decision, you didn't have a family, no dependents. Do you have now? No, no. Okay. (laughs) Because I hadn't seen anything on it when I'd done my research, so I was just curious. Okay. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Happening anytime soon.
0: <laughs> no, you know, I, I, I did a lot of raising of, 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 of I think deep down as like there's a desire there, but also it's kinda like, yeah, you know, I've I've done a lot of raising already, you know? Mm, okay. okay. And I think that it, it may be it may look different. It may be, you know, fostering parent like a foster parent, it may be like um, a, a adoption or something I don't know I don't really know I have mm-hmm. not um, it's, it's not something That I really Take a lot of time To think about You know Okay Yeah okay. But, it's a, but, it's a, but it's a question That definitely I've been I've, I think about it Once in a while But I don't spend A lot of time on it You know So maybe mm-hmm. with this end of the year Reflection I will Begin spending experiencing- it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, okay. like, but I feel like This ever forward Is like my My child You know Like uh-huh. I have I've burst this thing into the world and it's, it needs a lot of attention right now. And so I think it's, I think what, I, if I didn't have the, if I had a, a, the other responsibilities, I couldn't put the time into my own personal sure. development and growth. And, and, and so now I get to really be, you know, kind of thinking about me right now and thinking about my goals.
1: Ashanti, will be talking about some of his mistakes and general life lessons shortly. Stay with us. I'm Ushaye, and you're listening to Origins Africa Podcast. Hi there. Are you an entrepreneur, celebrity, innovator, executive, creator, religious leader, sportsman, or someone who's made and is making their dreams come true? I would like to share it on Origins Africa Podcast. Kindly send an email to OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com or reach us via any of our social media platforms Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Origins AF. Your origin story matters. Let's inspire hope one story at a time. If you like what you've listened to hitherto, click the subscribe button. For sponsorships, donations and adverts, please send an email to OriginsAfrica Podcast at gmail.com. Also share your thoughts and feedback with us on social media pages, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at OriginsAF. Don't forget to follow us. Hiya. Welcome back to Origins Africa Podcast. I'm Oshaya. So, the Ever Forward Club started in 2004 what were the mistakes and lessons are shown to on his journey
0: I don't know let's see I mean there's so many I mean so many I mean well that's a I mean that's an interesting question I mean because they can get so small right they get so small from from forgetting to pay a bill from not getting health insurance from like like I I don't know I mean there's layers of them right um so, so you know, when when you're running a nonprofit, I think most people when they start a business, you would imagine that they have a business plan, or they mm. would have a have a structure that was gonna, you know, like I didn't I didn't know what I was doing when I started this organization. I didn't know any I didn't know anything about running no business. Mm. So I just started, you know, I just went with the heart and make trying to make it up, and I think that. Is the the surviving rate of nonprofits, or so many of them in California for sure? But you know, there's I don't know the, there's some statistics out there about how long they last. Um, mm-hmm. I wish I had a better, I had to set up a better organizational structure. I wish I had, you know, like it. it, it it's hard. I'm just that's the best word I can say. It. It's hard to run a nonprofit. Um, it's hard to have a a business model where you're basically you're hunting for money, you know, Mm -hmm. and you hope that you have enough to make sure you can pay everybody and yourself. Right. And you, and, and there's no like, so I think like, I I don't mean mistakes. I mean, there's so many mistakes. Like I look at our business structure and organization, like our board, I need to really be getting the board off and running and, and stronger. That's the, as a goal for this first quarter of 2020 like you gotta get okay. there. Um, and, I, and I feel like a lot of times I, f- I think about mistakes I think I, I'm i constantly uh, in a state of like feeling like I'm not doing a good job you know oh okay so, so when I because I work so hard that's, that's a hard um, feeling to accept you know mm-hmm. So I think like um, I wanted to be further along in my life right now. I wanted mm-hmm. to be further along in my career. So I think that sometimes it's like um, it's hard to pinpoint like um, individual failures. okay? Because I think that sometimes it's like, man, like it's working. on one hand it's working, right? What mm-hmm. I hear? I hear people congratulate me for where we've come as an organization. I feel Mm -hmm. good about that. Um, When I hear people like invite me to talk at their convention or whatever, I feel good about that. Mm -hmm. But I think also sometimes it feels like it's still not enough, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So it's, um, I'm, it, yeah, I'm trying to, it's, hit, it's hitting me pretty hard right now, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think, like, uh, let me think about this. I think deep down, like, the idea is that when I was an engineer, I was clear because it was a constant, constant reminders that, like, you're smart, right? Mm hmm. I think in this work, it's kind of like, well, if you give it back to the community, you're seeing lives change. And I accept, and I'm glad for those opportunities for the young people whose lives that we get to support. But then there's also part of it where you're like, is this enough? You know, I, I'm, thinking I'm I'm not, I'm definitely not satisfied currently in terms mm. of how, where we are as an organization. Like I want to be, I wanna have an organization that's running a little more smooth. I think right now, we're kind of... We're running. <laughs> we're definitely running. Um, I wouldn't say we're running smooth, but we're running. Um, so it always feels like we're moving, you know? So I think if you're constantly running, you, you're going to feel like you're in motion. Now The question is, are you in the best type motion? Are you in the best motion to, to have massive success? And so think deep down is just uh, it's been this journey for myself of like what are my goals and dreams and how do I continue to um, just keep going after them like I think I have big goals for the organization and for myself and um, I think I'm finally starting to get to a place where I can just I, I think one thing I'm how do I describe this um, I don't give myself enough credit Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. so I think after leaving engineering, like, like here in here here in America, like teachers don't get a lot of respect. Mm-hmm. Right? It's considered mm-hmm. a very noble profession, but parents blame teachers, society blames teachers, so you get a lot of blame. Now, there's some bad teachers out there who deserve some blame, but mm-hmm. the idea is that the profession is challenging and difficult. And you're, I think that uh, it requires a lot of heart. And mm. so now that I'm, I'm running a nonprofit, you know, I'm not a teacher anymore, but I mean, I'm always a teacher, but I'm always an engineer. But now that I'm running this nonprofit as a social entrepreneur, then it's like these different levels. So like, you know, like as a teacher, you have a, che- you know, you have a small check, but you have a guaranteed check, right? We're running a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. You got to make sure that there's a check, you know? Like you don't need to sit back and just be like, okay, the money will come. I'm gonna get a check either way. No, no, no. If you're not out raising the capital, then there is no job, right? And so that that idea of like going after it, like leaving the guaranteed job, guaranteed check, right? leaving that that safe that little safety net behind sometimes feels uh, feels, feels heavy, feels heavy and mm-hmm. so like when you ask that question it's a very you know powerful question because I think like I'm constantly thinking like um, I think it's only been the last you know I've only been hired to, or four started in 2004 but I was a volunteer mm-hmm. so 2004 as a volunteer I just did what I could do because I was, had a job mm-hmm. then, to 2016 I'm the executive director I'm the founder like I have I have not only a job this is my job and mm-hmm. so more pressure to do good and so I think that that pressure I don't always reflect on the, the heaviness mm. yeah that's all I got right now
1: okay thanks for sharing that Ashanti so what values or principles do you live by that have helped you achieve the successes recorded today
0: um just like like the, like hard work like integrity like um, commitment like like um, like trust Mm. I think I I I, I, I want when I go do work with schools like I'm not doing it I'm clear with them about I'm not doing it for money you know Mm. one of the challenges with that is that when you don't do the work for money is because it's also that people will take advantage of you, sure, right? So when I, I've learned not to really tell people I'm not doing it for money anymore, because uh-huh. when you say that, then they're like, oh, okay, then we can, you know, pay you five hundred dollars to come uh-huh. and do this talk, even though normally they pay somebody seven to ten thousand dollars, right? Uh-huh. And so I've learned that if, even though deep down I don't do it for money, I know I, uh-huh. I know that I don't need to tell them that and I need to be really holding people to a responsibility to pay me what I'm worth. And I think that sometimes if organization really says, you know, Shanti, we we, you know, we really just don't have it, you know, like then I feel okay about lowering my rates or doing it for a rate that I normally wouldn't because it's like out of respect, right? As opposed to like somebody saying, well, we can get you for a little because you don't want to charge anyway. Um, I've learned that that phrasing, as much as it's has some truth in it, it it puts a barrier there. So I'm clear now with folks and uh, about, no, this, this is how much our rates are. And then we let them, you know, we learn how to negotiate. We're having to learn. We're learning this as we go. We didn't plan to start having to negotiate with people around money. But when you realize you have to negotiate with people around money, then you have to be like, either I'm going to get taken advantage of or I'm going to. Stand you know, I'm gonna stand up and tell them how they should treat me. And those are just like the journeys right now, right? So like that's been really exciting, right? So now as the organization is growing and I get to build it, I get to like look at the other side and say, This is how we're gonna do this next phase, you know? Mm-hmm. And um and that's been really exciting. That's been fun for us as a, a growing organization. Um so those values of like like, like being really committed to the work, right? And I think mm-hmm. the fact that I'm really committed to the work means that also I need to make sure that people who say they're committed to the work are treating us as professionals in the work. And so mm-hmm. um, it's always about kindness. I mean, I, I'm, I think um, since I was younger, I never went out and tried to find problems, you know, as a leader, you know, your job is to identify problems, but I'm not looking for trouble. I'm not looking for having a battle with someone. Um, and, and I tell my team, look, this email sounds a little bit, you know, a little bit rough. Let's take a day before we respond to it and let's think it out, you know, because you know, you can, if you're not clear about where you stand on stuff then you can get sucked into other people's you know, traps, you know, <laughs> that they're setting out there. And I'm like, yeah, that's not really what we're about. We're we're about doing the work and making sure that young people around the world are able to find deeper meaning in their own self and value. And so th- that's what is important to me. Like, uh, I think those are the values that I would say are, are the most strong. Okay. okay.
1: What's the most important thing you've learned in your life?
0: Oh, man, I don't think I've learned it yet. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think I've learned the most. I think the most important thing to date that I've learned to date is um, uh, just um, trust. Uh, trust, uh, be willing to ask for help. Mm. Uh, having good friends who you can turn to. I mean, you know, if I'm going through some deep struggle stuff, I know some people who I can send a text to and uh, okay. and, I'm on a, and I'm on a men's team who helps me through stuff, and just to know I got a place to go, and people can hear me, right? That, that can be heard. That no one's trying to fix me, but that I got a, a support system. So mm-hmm. I think that, that is what I. Um, I think the most important thing is learning how to ask for help, and uh, yeah. and having a community of people around you who 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 cheer for your success. Almost Mm -hmm. as much as you do or more, Mm -hmm. right? For me me as a person who doesn't often take time to celebrate success, Mm -hmm. uh, it's helpful having people who can help reflect it back, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now writing on that, um, so when in life have you felt most alone?
0: Alone? Yeah. Um, Wow. I mean, I think that's a great uh a lot of times hmm. a lot of times I mean I, I don't even I there, I mean growing up because I was oldest and I didn't have, my, didn't have a father there there's lots of times like, I, I can't even name them the most alone I would say um man when was that I would say when I came back after my second quarter in college and okay. I had been placed on academic probation um okay. You know, it means that you were you had, it means your grades were so low that you were going to be on probation, meaning that you had one more quarter to get your grades back up, or they would they would dismiss you from the university. And I was like, you know, college was hard for me. You know, as much as I thought I was smart, it was really hard because everybody's smart there. And um, I, uh, I the dorm was empty. Like I came back two days early. From winter break it was raining and i just remember getting that letter and i was in my dorm room by myself in the whole building No was in the whole building i mean i was the only one there and i really felt really alone i felt like how am i gonna get through this so it was one of those moments of like either you stick it out or you go back home and i was like i am not going home not going back home so i have a degree on my, on my in my pocket you know um and so I just, I felt, I mean, I, it was a lot, of, you know, that night I called my mom and I was telling her about the academic probation. And she was like, just put the letter away and get folk, you know, and, and, and to make it, make some decisions. And mm-hmm. then we put the letter away and I just got, I got in action and I was like, there's, there's no going home. There's no going home. And so that, I, I would say that's one of those nights where I remember just literally now only physically was I alone, there was no one there. But I just felt it, you mm. know. sometimes you can feel alone when there's a group, like a group of people around. This is one of those moments where I felt like two types of. It was up. It was up to me. And no one was going to do it for me. Mm. No one was going to make sure I passed my classes. It was up to me. So it was like uh, feeling like this sense of like uh, responsibility to get it together, and I'm really, okay. yeah.
1: Okay, and um, going back to the mask challenge. So what would you say are the masks that you do not really let people see?
0: Um, yeah, I think I've already, like, I think I've already kind of hit on that through this call, right? Like, talking about failures. Like, I don't really talk about failures. I don't talk about not feeling successful. I don't talk about... Yeah. So I've already kind of talked about it throughout this call, you know, I don't really, yeah, I don't normally talk about those things. So it's only like in a time like this, in an interview, someone hits me with a really tough question and I'm like, whoa, I'm feeling that one right there, you know, like where it's like, okay, this stuff I don't normally talk about because it's, it's causing an emotional charge in me, you know? And so things I talk about all the time are easy to talk about. I just like, oh yeah, this is what I, this is how we started. This is what we did. When you, ask me about, when you ask me about my failures, it's like, yeah, I feel it again. Like, it's still coming back up every time I say the word. So I think yeah. that's part of my work. It's part of my – so I think that uh, because I can feel the charge around it, it's like it's that belief. And some of my some of my self, self-talk, some of the story I tell myself, and some of it is things that I just personally want to work on and achieve. And so I'm constantly pushing forward through that.
1: Okay, okay.
0: So if you could send
1: a message to yourself 10 years ago, what would you tell the younger Ashanti?
0: Oh, 10 years ago? That was before Instagram? Uh, I would have said when Instagram comes out, kill it go in there <laughs> post every day <laughs> um, I would have been like uh, 10 years ago man I'd have been like okay there's gonna be this thing called uh, let me see this is 2019 2010 so that was like well, what 2000 that's back in 2010 is whole decade um, man I would have been like um, uh, I don't know I'd probably been just like uh, write the book and you need to uh, uh, just in, in, uh, enjoy and keep working hard through the success. Right. Like write the momentum. Like, like, you know, I, I think like if I had started writing my book back in 2010, it would be done by now because it's slow as I'm going on it. But um, okay. I think, uh, I, I don't know. I think I was just told myself like your story matters Mm-hmm. Oh, like your story, man. I think everything's happened since 2010. Actually, I'm gonna be doing an end of the year reflection. Like I look back at 2010, I'm like, wow, there's a lot has happened since then, you know. Mm-hmm. And most of I couldn't have predicted, <laughs> could not have predicted. So um, I'm just really excited about actually that was 2009, right? 2009, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like, wow, wow. Keep going, keep going. Don't quit don't quit Mm. yeah don't quit don't quit
1: okay so now just some trick questions or some caesar questions or some sort of funny questions so what's your favorite word
0: (laughs) my favorite word would be uh i don't know it'd be like you know what i'm saying you know what i'm saying? <laughs> it's kind of like, cause I, I use that with teenagers a lot. You know what I'm saying? Like that's like, do you know what I'm saying? I just words, but it sounds like one word. You know? Okay. <laughs> what food do you wish didn't exist? Oh okra. <laughs> Why that? It, I don't. I just don't do slimy foods. You know oh uh, okay okay it's like slimy it's like oh i mean i guess i, I could do without it because i don't really eat it but i'm trying to think what could i do yeah i think okra yeah. okra like it's just like a, such a yeah i don't know that's just the only one i can think about
1: and where is your favorite
0: place my favorite place yes like to go in my city or in the world in the world Where's that one place
1: That you love to go To your favorite
0: Um So I've probably been To Mexico Maybe 20 times
1: Oh okay
0: Yeah uh, I have two godsons there I speak Spanish So I uh, It's kind of It's close enough To you know California That I don't have to go So far It's like four hours away Um Mm. You know For maybe five hours On a plane or something But Yeah I just think Uh that's a place that I spend, uh, mo- I, spend, I spend most of my out of US time um, and I just have some really good friends there you know okay. okay okay how would you like to be remembered Um, I think I would like to be remembered as uh, a man who sacrificed mm-hmm. his own worldly pleasures his idea for um, for helping give back to the world and actually I won't say sacrifice because actually I know I won't take it back I I didn't make a sacrifice I should just follow my heart mm-hmm. so, yeah I would say it well, was none of the sacrifice I, I, I before I was like following the money and then mm-hmm. I decided to follow my heart and, I was okay. clear, and I'm clear that following my heart has brought me more joy than I ever could have imagined mm-hmm. yeah <laughs>
1: For the listeners, is there any wisdom you'd want to pass on to them? What would you want them to know? Well,
0: there's a quote that we say at the end of our workshops uh, that says, the longest distance that most people travel is the 18 inches between their head and their heart. And most people get stuck in their heads. And so we, when we can, we give out a, a heart or we show a picture of a heart. And we just say, every time you see a heart, a picture of a heart somewhere, just ask yourself when was the last time you connected to your heart? Mm. Um, and uh, it's just a reminder for people to not get stuck in their heads because you know our heads are doing their job to protect us or keep us safe, but our hearts are trying to make us connect. And um, mm. I think in this world right now, we just need more people who are willing to connect. And so that's the invitation I would say is to stay connected to your heart in this overly stimulated, heady world. Um, don't forget your value don't 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 use the hearts on your Instagram posts to tell you how much you're worth and how much you mean and and how important you are, how special you are. Um and stay connected to your heart. That's what be mm-hmm. the message I would leave.
1: That was Ashanti branch. He is the founder and CEO of the Ever Forward Club. To participate in the 100,000 mask challenge, kindly go to www100 You can make your own mask online there. Fam, let's get Ashanti to 100,000 masks. Thanks so much for listening to our show this week. You can subscribe at wherever you get your podcast, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, amongst others. And whilst you're there, please do give us a review. You can also write to us at OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at OriginsAF. We'd love to hear from you about how we're doing and where you'd like us to improve. Join us next time as we have a chat with Tenyola Sego. Co-founder and creative director at Clan, creative director at House of Diola. You think that you've done so well, like you tell yourself, "Wow, amazing! This is me. I've done New York Fashion Week." So that's me and my sisters. And you come back home, and instead of people here to be like, "Ah, oh, well done," people are actually trying to, you know, change the the scene, trying to put Lagos on the map. Who are hearing what nonsense is this? My tailor can so sew this. Uh, Who do they think they are? Is it because they're Olasegbola's daughters? and our show was produced this week by Tomesha Ajani, whilst the theme song was composed by Just Written Me. I'm Oshaya, and you've been listening to Origins Africa podcast. Bye for now.